You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Democratic candidates for president are preparing for their first debates next week. And one subject that's likely to get a lot of attention is immigration. It was and continues to be the centerpiece of President Trump's rise in politics and what makes him such a divisive figure. Democrats are eager to show their contrast to Trump's attitude, that they believe putting children in cages is wrong, that building a border wall is a ridiculous waste of money, that Trump's attitudes towards immigrants are soaked in xenophobia and racism. We're going to continue with Sheikha Dalmia, who says that Democrats' move to the left on this issue is a direct result of Trump, and that it's also a purely American phenomenon in an era where many countries face political divides on immigration. We're also joined by Ryan Devereaux, a reporter who's been covering a very interesting story that illustrates one way the immigration extremism is playing out. In Arizona, a humanitarian activist is facing 20 years in prison just because he offered food and water and clothing and shelter to two migrants who who crossed the border illegally. Ryan Devereaux, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so for people who are not familiar with this story, uh, last Tuesday, a jury refused to convict uh, Scott Warren, this this humanitarian, for providing water and food and clean clothes uh, to these migrants. But he's facing up to 20 years in prison. His trial ended last week in a mistrial, uh, but he could be uh, he could be retried. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona has not yet said whether or not they're going to retry uh, Scott Warren. A hearing is scheduled for the first week of July. So right now things are up in the air, but the last few weeks with the trial that played out in Tucson was really uh, quite interesting and dramatic. Uh, Talk about how common this kind of thing is in a state like Arizona, which is a border state, uh, and where you are seeing this immigration issue unfold in a different way, for instance, than those of us here in the Great Lakes. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Arizona actually has a fascinating history of this kind of work. In the early 80s, when the Reagan administration was systematically denying asylum uh, to refugees fleeing the dirty wars in Central America, a network of uh, priests, nuns, uh, reverends, uh, formed a sort of underground railroad uh, into the United States. They called it the Sanctuary Movement. They moved hundreds, potentially thousands of people into the United States, and they were targeted by the federal government in a sprawling undercover investigation that led to in, the indictments of uh, many uh, religious figures. But the sort of legacy of the, the Sanctuary Movement has carried on. In, in the 1990s, the mid-90s, the U.S. government instituted a policy called Prevention Through Deterrence, in which they started funneling migration flows into the deadliest areas of the border, mostly the Sonoran Desert, and we saw virtually overnight a skyrocketing in migrant deaths. Um, A minimum of 3,000 people have died in the last 20 years crossing the desert in Arizona, and and we know that the true toll is uh, believed to be much higher. In response to that, the same folks who started the sanctuary movement uh, began a a network of humanitarian groups that started putting out water in the desert, started putting out uh, humanitarian aid supplies for people who are crossing and when they encountered migrants in the field, they provided them uh, with, with medical care. Uh, these groups included, uh, mo- most prominently, a group called No More Deaths. In the case of Scott Warren, who we were just speaking about, beginning in 2014, Warren started bringing together 
uh, these humanitarian groups in a specific area of Arizona known as the West Desert or the Ajo Corridor, which has historically been the deadliest part of this deadly border. Um, and following President Trump's inauguration, federal wildlife officials and the U.S. Border Patrol started cracking down on these groups. They started bringing charges against volunteers for leaving water in the desert. And then all of this culminated in Scott Warren's January 2018, I'm sorry, arrest um, at, a, at a humanitarian aid facility known, known as the Barn, where he was found in the company of two young undocumented men from Central America who had been walking through the desert for days. Uh, he was arrested, as were the two migrants, and uh, a federal uh, grand jury indicted him the following month on two counts of harboring and one count of conspiracy. So now we're seeing a real test uh, of what uh, the government is going to do with groups that are working to address uh, the, the humanitarian crisis on the border um, and whether that sort of activity will be criminalized. Yeah. Uh, how is this playing out in, in moral terms in, in Arizona, this debate about uh, what to do uh, in response to, to people who try to, to help uh, migrants who are in violation of the law because they've crossed the border illegally. But, of course, uh, they're also in, in desperate uh, humanitarian shape. I mean, they need water and food and shelter, obviously. Um, can you talk about what, uh, what people in Arizona are saying about, uh, about this approach? Well, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Arizona has a relationship to immigration, obviously, that looks a little different than the rest of the country. Um, in Tucson, where this trial was being held, all across town you see yard signs that say humanitarian aid is not a crime, drop the charges. It, it, Tucson in particular has seen a trial like this before about 10 years ago. Two No More Deaths volunteers were similarly charged with, um, with harboring crimes, and, and that, that case was dropped. A lot of folks in southern Arizona, and particularly if you go south of Tucson to the, down to the actual border in, in towns like Ajo, uh, where Scott Warren lives, which is an unincorporated community about 40 miles north of the border, providing water or food to people who come out of the desert is, 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 is sort of just a part of living in the desert. Hmm. You have to understand that in, in places like that, in communities right there along the border, the desert is, is an incredibly imposing and deadly environment, particularly in the summer months, but also in the winter when, uh, when temperatures uh, really drop at, at night. So there's a relationship to, to providing this kind of assistance uh, to folks that is maybe a bit more nuanced than, than people might expect. At the same time, Arizona has also been home to a lot of really hard right approaches to immigration enforcement. And look at the Look at the legacy of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, um, who, who was north of Tucson, but sort of made his name in, in instituting a culture of cruelty in, in his treatment of migrants who came into custody. Um, we also have a, a history of border militias in Arizona and, and a history of the Border Patrol in that particular, particular part of the country uh, destroying jugs of water that humanitarian aid groups leave in the desert. And, and in fact, on the day that Scott Warren was arrested, no More Deaths, the group he had uh, worked with, had released a report documenting the Border Patrol's destruction of thousands of jugs of water uh, over multiple years. Hours after that report was released, which included video evidence, the Border Patrol descended on the barn and arrested Scott Warren. Wow. Okay. Ryan Devereaux, investigative journalist who's been covering immigration enforcement, the drug war, and national security for The Intercept. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. And of course, you can go check out more of Ryan's work at Intercept. 
Com. Okay, I want to continue the conversation here with uh, Sheikha Dalmia, senior analyst at the Reason Foundation, who recently wrote a piece for Reason titled, Democrats Have Never Been More Pro-Immigration Thanks to Trump. We also want to hear from you in this segment. Uh, have your attitudes toward immigration policies shifted? Has the Trump era affected the way that you view immigration and immigrants? And is that an issue that will be especially important to you when you head off to the polls again next November to support someone for president? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Give us a call and tell us what you're thinking about immigration as we prepare to kick off the debate season for uh, election 2020. Uh, Sheikha, I want to start with uh, an excerpt from from your piece uh, that, that, that sort of capsulizes what's happening uh, in this democratic field. Uh, you say, what explains this democratic romance with immigrants? Part of it is that a general revulsion at Trump's border cruelty, his child separation pro- uh, policies, intermittent-style camps for Central American asylum seekers, deportations of people who've built lives in America, is generating a pendulum swing in a pro-immigration direction. Indeed, 61% of the respondents in an NBC Wall Street Journal poll last fall said Immigration helps the United States more than it hurts, and 28% said it hurts. In 2005, by contrast, 37% said immigration helps more, and 53% said it hurts. That is a 49-point swing in immigration's favor, and Democrats are reflecting that. Um, one of the things that I think is is sort of undergirding your, your piece on this is the idea that Democrats, uh, despite some of their rhetoric— have not always been very pro-immigration. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly. But just let me back up for just a second and uh, comment on the last conversation you sure. were having. with Ryan. With yeah. Ryan, which was, uh, you know, I actually traveled to Arizona last year and did two long features for Reason Magazine, uh, sort of predicting what was to come at the national level uh, because Arizona has already been there, done that when it comes to tough in, uh, immigration enforcement with Joe Arpaio. And one of the things I had mentioned was, and that was sort of the headline of the piece, was that, you know, if you do t- tough enforcement, you're not just going to have to go after uh, immigrants, you're also going to have to go after Americans themselves. And uh, because you simply cannot con- uh, control outsiders with all, without also controlling insiders. And that had actually happened in Arizona with Joe Arpaio who started off by, you know, these deportation raids against immigrants, but then very quickly that turned into a general crackdown against Arizona employers who were hiring uh, unauthorized workers, many of them Republicans, actually, uh, and also going after uh, human rights activists uh, like Scott Warren. Uh, There's a border community of Arivaca where uh, you know, they had uh, talked uh, talked ICE into establishing a checkpoint so that every person in that town who had to wanted to go to Tucson for a doctor's appointment had to go through a border checkpoint and was subject to all kinds of harassment that, uh, you know, immigrants usually experience at the border. So this is entirely predictable that uh, that Trump's efforts to enforce immigration law should morph from, you know, a reign of fear and terror in, in the immigrant communities to that 
in American communities and aid workers, especially. Mm. I mean, it's entirely predictable. Uh, and to go back, uh, you know, to your question, yes, Democrats have not always been friends of immigrants. To the contrary, uh, uh, there is a labor law professor, or sorry, a labor economist at uh, uh, Cornell University, I think his name is Werner Riggs, who once said that there is not a single restrictionist law in this country that has not been passed without labor support. Right. And labor has typically been uh, obviously in you know yeah. the, in the Democrats' camp. Uh, all that seems to have changed in the last four or five years, um, and especially it started changing a little bit in the last election. Although Hillary Clinton was still you know sort of trying to straddle the pro-immigration and the anti-immigration divide, she was very much against giving license, drivers licenses to undocumented workers. She also you know after that San Francisco case where uh, the woman was killed by an uh, unauthorized immigrant. She came down very harshly against sanctuary cities mm. and all of that. That has completely changed in this in this election going forward. Um, Democrats are now vying with each other, uh, you know, as to who is more immigrant friendly. So Julian Castro, uh, you know, through his opening volley with this very pro-immigration plan, where he essentially called for the decriminalization of uh, unauthorized immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, it's a um, it's a fe- it's a felony if uh, you enter this country uh, without proper pa- papers. He wants to make it just a civil crime which it was before 1942, I'm sorry, 1952. And, uh, you know, just shortly after he came up with his plan, Beto O'Rourke announced his plan. I mean, and Beto O'Rourke, to be fair to him, has always been fairly immigration friendly. He's a... Uh, He has not changed his mind. He has not changed his mind. He is a congressman from El El Paso or was a former congressman, which is a border town. And El Paso is, despite having a very large unauthorized population, is actually one of the safest city of its size in the country. And so he, Beto sort of understands, uh, you know, uh, understands the, um, the issue fairly well. And he came out with his plan also uh, proposing very friendly immigration policies. Uh, Didn't go as far as Castro did in terms of uh, demanding a decriminalization, but, you know, lots of good immigration-friendly stuff. And since then, somebody like Bernie Sanders, who actually once said not too long ago, in fact, last year, that open borders, which is really code for restrictionist policies, sure. is a coke conspiracy, that this is just em- uh, employers who want cheap labor pushing for open borders. He has sort of changed his mind as an, and is now calling out Trump and his crackdown at the border, as is Kamala Harris. Hmm. And uh, so Democrats right now are in sort of this, you know, what I'm saying, a virtuous cycle of ever more pro-immigration policies Partly for the reason that you mentioned, which was there's a general pendulum uh, swing among uh, the general voters uh, in a more pro-immigration direction, but also because Republicans have decided, or under Trump, have decided that they are going to simply court the white vote Mm. in this country. And so they are, you know, Trump is sort of playing for broke when it comes to that vote. He's just all in. He is not trying to diversify his electoral strategy and try and court other work, uh, other other voters, with the result that 
Democrats, to some extent, have no choice but to go after, you know, all the minority voters and Hispanics and what have you. So they are trying to consolidate that vote while Trump is trying to consolidate the white vote. And so both of them are there in their own electoral cycle. And that, I mean, that leaves very little play in the joints, I guess, between yeah. the two of them to actually come up with policy that would that would address some of these things. I mean, uh, I thought it was really interesting as Ryan Devereaux was talking about the situation in, in Arizona. I was thinking about all of the, the national policy uh, that that could be changed to, to eliminate this this problem. Right. I mean, you could talk about uh, the, the, the ways in which we treat people who come here illegally and change the law so that uh, they're not wandering in the desert. You could, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of the issue, you could tighten border security if that's if that's your approach uh, so that people are not able to do that so easily. But but you can't get to any of these solutions as long as you've got these two poles. Right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the only way you get to a solution is when one side or the other decisively wins. And then can basically impose a solution because they control all three branches of government and not just control them, but with substantial margins in the House and the Senate to basically impose a solution. Uh, I don't see that happening, at least not for a while. But the good thing is that to the extent that immigration has become a wedge issue in the next election, the outcome will be clarifying for you know one side or the other. Um, and, you know, Democrats, the interesting thing is that Democrats didn't have to go in a pro-immigration direction, right? Mm. I mean, they haven't in the past. They've tried to actually swing to the middle, both because of, you know, the labor, you know, labor union pressure, but also because, you know, that's where voters tend to be this time. And that, by the way, has also happened in Denmark with the social Democrats have been completely co-opted by the far right party. And they've won elections this time mm. by partly embracing the you know far right mm. uh, agenda on immigration. And Democrats could have gone in a similar direction over here. But the problem is that uh, for Republicans, the problem is that the demographic makeup of this country has shifted so much. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. That it uh, is, you yeah. know, not a viable strategy for yeah. too long. I, I, I want to get to a quick call here uh, before we have to end. Jay and Westland, I've got about a minute left, but I wanted to give you a chance here. Hi, Steve. Uh, I just want to point out that pure immigration that is never talked about. One thing is the pool factors. For us Africans in, our, in America, we want to go back to Africa. And the reason we can't go is American policy of supporting dictators around the world. Dictators that have been in power for 40 years who push people out of those countries. Yeah. That is the issue. If you ask eight out of 10 Africans in America, they are ready to go back today if you get rid of people like Paul Bia in Cameroon, right. to the ADS in power, and the rest. I mean, find out how you see. Yeah, Jay, Jay, that's a great, that's a great point. Uh, and she got this idea of, you know, again, uh, changing policy so that we don't face the immigration problems that we have is is sort of the elusive, the elusive issue here. Um, Always great to have you here, though, Sheikha. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for uh, being here. All right, uh, come back tomorrow, and we're going to talk to the head of Michigan's Department of Civil Rights to talk about his agency's recommendation that the Gross Point School District start over 
on its plan to close schools because it says it's not paying enough attention to racial issues. And on the media host, Brooke Gladstone is going to join the program to talk about her special reporting on eviction and housing. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.